sometimes as we seek to navigate life as Christian people in the public square. I think we can be just a little bit too concerned about strategy. And we end up, if we're not careful, playing a kind of strategy game. We're carefully moving pieces around the chessboard, hoping to avoid a checkmate. Welcome to Encountering the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and glad you've joined us today. We're beginning a message called Zealous for What is Good. And Jonathan, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about what you mean there, how you see Christians maybe a little too concerned about strategy. Well, Steve, I think as Christian people, we're very aware that we're living in a cultural context that is rapidly changing. And in many ways in, in the Western world, which is less friendly to the Christian faith, we find that we're more and more out of step with uh, the government, more and more out of step with the culture around us. And as we are aware of this, we can be very inclined to play a very safe game, to think carefully how to avoid trouble or awkwardness in our engagement with other people who don't share our faith. And I, I think what, what Peter is encouraging us toward here is to a transparent goodness and pursuit of that which is good in the public square, to contribute positively to society, um, to do our best to serve those around us, and just to leave the consequences to the Lord, not to be ashamed of our faith, not to back out of the public square, not to, not to hide our belief, but just to seek to honor the Lord and to contribute positively to the society around us. And I, I think we need that encouragement. I think we need to be reminded that that is our calling as Christian people. Well, let's find that encouragement together from the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3 today, looking at verses 13 to 22. We're beginning a message called, Zealous for What is Good. Here is Jonathan. Well, friends, I think we all know that it is not a straightforward thing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in a world that does not know him or acknowledge him in a society that does not widely accept him. I think we all know that. We're keenly aware of that at the present time. And it is today our great challenge as the people of God to learn and discover how to engage fruitfully and faithfully in a godless society. You know, should we be bold or should we be quiet? Should we be fearless or should we be cautious? What is the correct posture for the people of God? What is the correct approach? Now, I guess our answer to that question will vary to an extent depending upon the cultural season in which we find ourselves. In some places and some eras of history, the pressure is going to be a little bit lower. The opposition will be less vocal and less discernible. Christians will feel less keenly the need to be swimming against the tide all the time. And in such times and in such seasons of church history, the temptation, I think, for the people of God will be to drift into a kind of complacency. At other times, the pressure will be higher and the opposition will be more visible and vocal. The threat of opposition and persecution will be more real. And at such times, the temptation for the people of God might be to retreat into a kind of fearfulness. We'll fear the opposition that might press upon us. We'll be anxious about saying too much about our faith, too much about the Lord in the, in the public square. We'll be frightened of the suffering that might come our way. Now, Peter wrote this letter at, at a time and in a place where that latter scenario was being played out in real time. The opposition of a pagan society was tangible, 
The believers knew that persecution really could come their way. They, they knew that it might be very, very costly to name the name of Jesus Christ in the public square. Some were doubtless already paying a very high price for their faith at the time that this letter was being written. Now, in that sense, their era is not altogether unlike our era. We know it. The scorn is real. The issues of cultural engagement are very, very complex. We know that the cost might be high for us in career, in reputation, in relationship, and in other ways. It could cost us dearly to be public Christians in a skeptical and a scornful age. Knowing that this is the case, what posture then should we adopt? What should be our approach? How should we prepare ourselves to walk out into a skeptical and a scornful world as representatives of Jesus Christ. Now, mindful of this challenge and mindful of this question, Peter sets before us in these verses two things. He sets before us a zeal to foster, and he sets before us a model to follow. We begin with the first, a zeal to foster, a zeal that each one of us must cultivate and guard in our own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is a zeal for that which is good. Verse 13 again. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled." I don't know if you play board games at all. We go through seasons in our family where we, we do that, and then we kind of get tired of them, tired of the games that we have, and we take a break for a bit. I always think personally that the very best games are the kind of strategy games, games that make you think all the time about consequences, that make you anticipate the moves of your opponents, that train you to think about self-preservation and personal advantage over the long haul. I think of a game like Risk, or of the timeless classic chess, you know, the, 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 these games of strategy and the pursuit of one's own advantage over time, they, they kind of strike a chord. They appeal to us, don't they? Sometimes as we seek to navigate life as Christian people in the public square, I think we can be just a little bit too concerned about strategy, a little bit too concerned about uh, survival. We can be a little bit too clever, actually, a little too careful of ourselves, a little too strategic. You know, how can I be just enough of a Christian to keep some integrity about me while not jeopardizing my position, my reputation, my future? How can I be as faithful as possible, you know, without getting myself into trouble with those around me? And we end up, if we're not careful, playing a kind of strategy game. We're carefully moving pieces around the chessboard, hoping to avoid a checkmate. And it seems to me that Peter is very, very aware that we could adopt that kind of posture and outlook. And he says to us, in essence, look, don't be, don't be worrying about outcomes. Don't be worrying about next moves on the board all the time. Don't be fretting about how you will be perceived or how you will be treated. Concern yourself simply with this. Concern yourself with doing that which is right. Be zealous for that which is good. Have a passionate commitment to what is right in the eyes of God, have a commitment to that which is marked by integrity and faithfulness. Be zealous, really zealous for that in your heart of hearts. Concern yourself with that. Make that your true passion. And in terms of outcomes, well, most of the time, you know what? That's actually going to work out pretty well for you. Most of the time. Who is going to harm you if you have that commitment? 
that zeal? Who is going to want to harm you if you are really zealous for that which is good? In general terms, people are not going to seek to harm you while you are doing that. Most of the time, the pursuit of that which is good is not going to land you in too much difficulty. That was true then in Peter's day, and it's true now in ours. Despite the godlessness of our society, despite the bad press that Christians can receive, I think we all know that in general, if a Christian person really is marked by integrity, by kindness, by honorable behavior in the marketplace, people are, you know what, they're going to respect that. People will appreciate it, actually. People will not be out to target that person. Such a person does not quickly become an object of attack, even today, even in our age. And, and you know what? We just need to remember that. The world, is, the world is sinful. The world is fallen. Society is getting darker. But people are not totally undiscerning round about us. And they're not totally blind to goodness. No, you go out there, you do your job, you do your work with integrity, you show honesty in your dealings, you take an interest in people and you treat them with kindness, you treat, you treat them with dignity, and the truth is most of the time it's going to go pretty well for you doing that, most of the time. You'll probably do better in your career for that, your business will probably benefit from it, your influence will probably widen as a result as people see goodness and find that attractive and respond positively. It is still the case much of the time in the world today. And it's, it's not going to help us to be overly fearful or cynical in our posture and our outlook. We need to remain, I think, positive and optimistic in that sense. And I think we have reason to remain positive and optimistic. Peter certainly thinks that we do. But, but we say to Peter, you know, okay, we take that on board. We hear you and we want to take that seriously. But, but here's the thing. What about the stories? What about the cases of godly believers facing a really rotten time out there? What about the, um, the office culture where godly scruples are not tolerated? Where opportunities are actually now actively denied to the Christian person, where the disciple of Jesus Christ is squeezed out, shown the door? What about the classroom environment, the academic environment? where a biblical worldview is simply not accepted as credible and the believer can barely function, let alone succeed? What about the family situation where the convert to Christ is thrown out and cut off? What about places in the world today, and there are many of them, where Christians face physical violence and worse for naming the name of Jesus Christ? We, we know the stories. We have some experiences of our own and represented here. What about that, Peter? How do we approach that? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Okay, it might happen, says Peter. That's true. You might do what is right, and you might say what is true. You might behave with perfect integrity and even so, you might suffer in the end. People might attack you. People might malign you. People might persecute you. But, but here's the thing, says Peter, in the end, the Lord will bless you. You'll know his grace and his provision and his, his children. His children don't miss out in the end. His eyes upon you. He will take care of you. And even if you face short-term loss in this life, you will not face ultimate loss. 
This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we're listening to a message called Zealous for What is Good. It's a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, really focusing on verses 13 to 22 today. Now, we're going to pause the message here, but we'll get back to it in just a moment. Maybe you listen to Jonathan's teaching on the radio, online, or even through our app. Hey, we're glad you've connected with us, but did you also know that you can watch Jonathan teach on our YouTube channel? If you go to Encounter the Truth on YouTube, you're going to be able to like and subscribe, and that way you can be updated anytime we post some new content on there. Again, just simply look for Encounter the Truth on YouTube, or we'll link you to that through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Again, here's Jonathan. And so Peter says, have no fear of them, and don't be troubled. Well, easier said than done, we might reply to Peter, but, but he means it. Like he's saying, the Lord's not going to forget you. And the Lord's not going to abandon you. He will bless you in the end. Just don't let the troublemakers trouble you, says Peter. And and instead, and this is maybe not where our thinking would go, but this is where Peter's thinking naturally goes. It goes to our witness. His thinking goes to the gospel. Instead of being intimidated and fearful of others, here's what to do, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Whatever pressures you may face, have your heart set to honor Christ the Lord. Honor him first of all. Have your primary concern in your heart of hearts to be his honor, not your reputation, not your security in this world. And Peter specifies, interestingly, to honor him as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, to be holy is to be set apart for the Lord. It is to be separated from sin and defilement. And the sense here, I think, is to be very careful not to allow any pressure to impinge upon or compromise your honoring of Christ in your heart of hearts. The image, as I was reading this, came to mind, and I don't know if this is helpful, the image came to to mind of the guarding of the great St. Paul's Cathedral in London during the bombings of the, the Second World War. You may know that while London was being decimated and bombarded in the Blitz, Winston Churchill gave the order that St. Paul's must be guarded and protected at at all costs. Resources should be focused there to protect the great cathedral. The the whole city might burn, but St. Paul's must be spared. And you know, that's a very, very powerful image of guarding, of protecting, of ring fencing in the midst of danger and of attack. Whatever trouble or attack or bombardment may come our way in the world as we seek to live as Christian believers, whatever assaults may be brought against us, we need to guard in our hearts the honoring of Christ the Lord. We need to treat him as holy. And you know, doing that doesn't involve going down deep under the earth into a bunker and hoping for the best. It's not a retreat. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It is a preparedness to speak of him and to speak for him when asked. Notice again what Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know, as Christians, we never adopt a bunker mentality. We don't go into hiding. The Lord has not left us in a lost and dying world to, you know, hide in the basement and kind of count the hours until the storm passes. No, He has left us here to be a blessing. He has left us here to be actively engaged as a witness to Christ, as a light for the gospel. You see, we're secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know where our future lies. So we don't don't descend into fear. Rather, we make sure we're ready when the opportunities arise to speak of Christ. 
And it's very lovely the way in which this is framed. We need to be ready not to be, you know, to kind of fight back, not to counter argue, but rather ultimately to give a reason for the hope that is in us. In a hopeless and a very, very fearful world, you and I are going to be characterized by hope. We're going to be characterized by a hope that is counterintuitive and a hope that is countercultural. And even today, there, you know, there's so much pessimism around. I mean, think of it. Consider the news you perhaps even read this morning. The economic outlook. It is very choppy. The geopolitical landscape. It's a mess. It's scary. Social breakdown. It is all around us. Young people are facing terrible headwinds as they seek to find their way in the world and on and on the list goes. And yet here we are, we are a people of hope, joyful hope. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, we are hope-filled. And Peter envisages that this hope will be so evident within us, so clear from our demeanor, so clear from our behavior and our conversation, that the people around us might actually notice it, might well wonder, hey, what's up with them, might well actually come to us and ask us, what is this hope all about? And when that happens, he says, be ready. Be ready simply to tell them why you are so hope-filled. Now, I think we sometimes look at this very well-known verse, and it's a familiar verse. Many will have memorized it. And we see the call to be ready to give a reason. And, you know, we read that, and I think we actually feel just a little bit anxious. We think to ourselves, well, you know, the clever apologists, they're ready. They can give these tightly reasoned answers to all the hard questions that come up. You know, the church historians, they're ready. They can give all the strong arguments for the historicity of biblical events, the veracity of the resurrection and things like this. And if I'm going to be ready like they're ready, you know, I'm going to have to read a big stack of intimidating books. Maybe I'm going to need to go back to college, take a course, and, you know, then I might be ready. But if I'm honest, I'm nowhere near ready for that. I feel very helpless. But I think, again, I think we can actually overthink this. I think we can get ourselves quite worried but notice again what Peter's saying. He's saying, just be ready to tell others why you are hope-filled in a hopeless world, why you are secure in an insecure world, why you are joyful in a joyless world. Be ready for that. And the answer, you know, to that is not complicated. It's simply a matter of saying who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he means to you. That's all. It's not complicated. It doesn't need to be very clever. It just needs to be clear, and it needs to be true, and it needs to come from the heart. Now, I say we don't need to read a stack of books or take a course to do that, and we don't, but Peter does say that we need to be ready, and I think as we consider what it means to be ready and take on board that instruction, there are probably two aspects to this readiness. One is being ready in spirit, and that means really being willing to answer, not being shy or scared or ashamed. That's a kind of heart readiness. But the other aspect of being ready does involve thinking about what we'd say. And it's a good question to consider. If someone said to you, you know, what is it that's different about, about you? Why are you so contented or, or serene or joyful, so filled with hope in these very hopeless days? You know, what, what would you say? I mean, how would you begin to answer that question? Now, that is something you can actually prepare for a little, something you can uh, consider and even work on. I don't normally assign homework, but here's some homework. Why not take a few minutes later today or this week and think through what you would say to that kind of a question? Pray over that. Maybe jot down a couple of thoughts. 
Practice it at home with another believer, member of the family. Be ready, says Peter, for that conversation, for the question when it comes. He adds another note here, another instruction. He, he tells us that we not only need to be ready to give an answer, but we need to give that answer with gentleness and respect. I don't know what you make of this, but it seems to me that those are two qualities that seem to have fallen out of fashion at the present time. They seem a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit otherworldly. I think of the social media landscape, and it's just extraordinary how aggressive and rude our interactions have become as a society so much of the time. And, you know, this isn't a marginal observation. So much of our social interaction now does take place in the electronic realm, and it's, it's often rude, isn't it? It's often abrasive, sometimes crude, and in a, as a society, we're sort of training ourselves to behave in this kind of a way. We are normalizing this kind of behavior. But Peter says, when the opportunity comes for you to give your answer, make sure it is marked by gentleness and by respect. Now, we are so much, I think, on the back foot as Christians at the present time. We, we anticipate pushback and we anticipate pressure and we so easily feel threatened, I think, marginalized, misunderstood, and all the rest. But Peter, Peter urges us, you know, don't succumb to those feelings. We need to keep ourselves on an even keel, and we need to calmly and graciously answer the questions that may come to us about our faith. The idea of respect is interesting because the questions may well come from someone who, who does not share our worldview in any measure, someone whose worldview is actually way out of sync with ours. You know, the question may come from an atheist or a follower of another re religion, an outright idolater, whatever the case may be and whoever the person may be. And we might well think, well, you know, faithfulness in this situation demands that we demolish their idols and refute their arguments. Those, those pagans and idolaters, you know, they need to be set right with some urgency here. We need to tell them that their thinking is darkened and godless and so on. And we might imagine that the Bible would call us to that kind of frankness. But Peter says, perhaps to our surprise, show them respect. Be courteous. It doesn't mean compromising on the truth. It just means being polite and being gracious. It means recognizing that this person with whom you are having a conversation is made in the image of God, is capable of rational thought, and you are able to have a reasonable conversation with them. It means behaving in a Christ-like way. And if we behave in that way, verse 16, here's what the result will be. Personally, we will have a good conscience. We're not going to need to go home at the end of that particular exchange feeling guilty for our rudeness or our aggression, feeling regretful for you know, putting someone off the gospel by our demeanor, lying awake at night, playing the conversation over in our mind and just being filled with guilt. And this will mean that there's no ammunition for the enemies of the gospel to use against us, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The criticism, the accusations, they may well come, but don't allow those criticisms and accusations to have the force of truth behind them. You may suffer, verse 17. The Lord may allow that, but don't let it be because you have done evil. Let it be for doing the Lord's will in faithfulness. Friends, we're very aware, aren't we, that we step out into a world that often doesn't know what to make of us as Christian people, that is very skeptical of our faith, that is perhaps scornful of our scruples, dismissive of our Lord. We know that the opposition is real. We sense that persecution could come. 
what should be our posture. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called Zealous for What is Good, part of our series Faith Under Fire. Well, we are going to pause here, but we'll continue next time, so I hope you'll make it a point to listen. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's free. You'll find it at your app store or through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. But whether you listen on the radio, online, or through the app, it's all made possible through your generosity. So thank you for supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that Jonathan has picked out, written by David Gooding and John Lennox, called The Definition of Christianity. In this book, Lennox and Gooding are answering questions like, who gets to determine what Christianity means, and is it even possible to understand its original message after all these centuries of tradition and conflicting ideas? Again, we'd love to send you the definition of Christianity as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. For our Bible teacher, Jonathan Griffiths, as well as our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.